You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number five, one, four. Hello and welcome once again to another podcast here on the Outdoors Station. I'm your host, Bob Cartwright, and regular listeners of our extensive backer catalogue covering some 15 years will know I try to mix it up a bit and keep content fresh, stimulating and entertaining. This is another two-part podcast with two British adventurers, Ian Finch and Jamie Barnes, who in March 2019 undertook a fascinating journey in the States. Not one of the PCT, AT or CDT fame, but one based on a shameful period in American history, which involved a 900-mile paddle and a 400-mile walk on a national historic trail known as the Trail of Tears. Now, I had never heard of this, and after some research, I too was equally fascinated by this sad story and how Ian and Jamie came to find themselves setting off on this 81-day journey. Before we get into the interview proper, let me just take a few moments to set the scene and bring you up to speed. The Trail of Tears in US history is about the forced relocation during the 1830s of the Cherokee, Creek, Chickasaw, Choctaw and Seminole nations from the east of the United States to new designated Indian territory west of the Mississippi River. Estimates based on tribal and military records suggest that approximately 100,000 indigenous people were forced from their homes during that period, which is sometimes known as the Removal Era, and that some 15,000 died during the journey west. The term Trail of Tears invokes the collective suffering those people experienced, although it is most commonly used in reference to the removal experience of the Southeast Indians generally and the Cherokee Nation specifically. The physical trail consisted of several overland routes and one main water route, which stretched some 5,045 miles, or about 8,100 kilometers, across portions of nine states, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Missouri, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. The roots of the forced relocation lay in greed. The British Proclamation of 1763 designated the region between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River as Indian Territory, although that region was to be protected for the exclusive use of indigenous peoples, large numbers of Euro-American land speculators and settlers soon entered. For the most part, the British and later US governments ignored these acts of trespass. In 1829, a gold rush occurred on Cherokee land in Georgia. Vast amounts of wealth were at stake. At their peak, Georgia mines produced approximately 300 ounces of gold a day. 
Land speculators soon demanded that the US Congress devolve to the states the control of all real property owned by tribes and their members. That position was supported by President Andrew Jackson, who was himself an avid speculator. Congress complied by passing the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The indigenous reactions to the Indian Removal Act varied. The Southeast Indians were, for most part, tightly organised and heavily invested in agriculture. The farms of the most populous tribes, the Choctaw, Creek, Chickasaw, Seminole and Cherokee, were particularly coveted by outsiders because they were located in prime agricultural areas and were very well developed. This meant that speculators who purchased such properties could immediately turn a profit. Fields had already been cleared, pastures fenced, barns and houses built and the like. Thus, the Southeast tribes approached federal negotiations with the goal of either reimbursement for or protection of their members' investments. The Choctaw were the first to finalise negotiations. In 1830, they agreed to cede their real property for Western land, transportation for themselves and their goods, and logistical support during and after the journey. However, the federal government had no experience in transporting large numbers of civilians, let alone their household effects, farming equipment and livestock. Bureaucratic ineptitude and corruption caused many Choctaw to die from exposure, malnutrition, exhaustion and disease while travelling. The Chickasaw signed an initial removal agreement as early as 1830, but negotiations were not finalised until 1832. Skeptical of federal assurances regarding reimbursement for their property, members of the Chickasaw Nation sold their land holdings at a profit and financed their own transportation. As a result, their journey, which took place in 1837, had fewer problems than did those of other southeast tribes. The Creek also finalised a removal agreement in 1832. However, Euro-American settlers and speculators had moved into the planned Creek sessions prematurely, causing conflicts, delays and fraudulent land sales. That delayed the Creek journey until 1836. Federal authorities once again proved incompetent and corrupt, and many Creek people died, often from the same preventable causes that had killed Choctaw travellers. A small group of Seminole leaders negotiated a removal agreement in 1832, but a majority of the tribe protested that the signatories had no authority to represent them. The United States insisted that the agreement should hold, instigating such fierce resistance to removal that the ensuing conflict became known as the Second Seminole War, 1835-42. Although many were eventually captured and removed to the West, a subsequent number of Seminole people managed to elude the authorities and remain in Florida. The Cherokee chose to use legal action to resist removal. Their lawsuits reached the US Supreme Court, but ultimately provided no relief. As with the Seminole, a few Cherokee leaders negotiated a removal agreement that was subsequently rejected by the people as a whole. Although several families moved west in the mid-1830s, most believed that their property rights would ultimately be respected. 
However, this was not to be the case. And in 1838, the US military began to force Cherokee people from their homes, often at gunpoint. Held in miserable internment camps for days or weeks before their journeys began, many became ill, and most were very poorly equipped for the arduous trip. Those who took the river route were loaded onto boats, which traversed the Tennessee, Ohio, Mississippi and Arkansas rivers, eventually arriving at Fort Gibson in Indian Territory. Not until then did the survivors receive much-needed food and supplies. Perhaps 4,000 of the estimated 15,000 Cherokee died on the journey, while some thousand avoided internment and built communities in North Carolina. In 1987, the US Congress designated the Trail of Tears as a National Historic Trail in memory of those who had suffered and died during removal. In the 1830s, mass forced movement of people and land grabs appeared to be the norm. If you keep listening to the end of this podcast, I'll explain what was happening in Scotland during exactly the same period. So you've heard the backstory, now to find out how Ian and Jamie found themselves on the Trail of Tears. So uh, I run a small business where uh, I take people into the outdoors to enjoy the outdoors and, and wild camping and stuff like that. And Jamie came on uh, one of those trips a few years ago now, probably t two years ago now. Um, and on a morning over a coffee, I asked Jamie what, if he had any choice or any sort of, if money was no object, what expedition would he do? Um, or what journey would he follow? What story he would like to tell? And he told me the story of the Trail of Tears, which at that point I didn't realise, even though I'd, I'd had a, a love and an interest with Native American history and, um, and things like that for a long time. I hadn't heard of that story. So Jamie sort of updated that, you know, told me that story and told me sort of what happened or roughly what happened. Um, and we just kind of just developed that, that at that point at that seed and uh, came up with an idea where we could follow the route or follow parts of the route and incorporate uh, the, the Cherokee Nation within that journey. Um, so it really started over a coffee in the Cotswolds. I, I initially found out about it um, through a, a friend of mine who lives in the United States. Um, I was having a conversation with him. He was over in the UK and uh, he told me about the Trail of Tears. And at that point when he told me, you know, I'd never heard anything about that. Um, it's something that in the UK... The rest of Europe, maybe even all of the world outside of the United outside of the United States, it's not something that's sort of taught in history lessons or covered in books as such. Um, it really, it really kind of stood out to me because when, when I was growing up, I used to, and it sounds really cheesy, but when I was a kid, I used to love like cowboy and Indian films, all that kind of stuff. Um, and as I was growing up, I kind of started to notice this trend that the Native Americans were always portrayed as the bad guys. Um, and then as time went on, I'd, I was exploring more into this kind of area of history. I then saw the flip side and was like, well, no, actually, the, the, the Native Americans who were being called savages, they weren't the savages. They were the people whose land, you know, they'd lived on this land for thousands of years. Um, and then it was these new people coming in that had kind of... Uh, 
were, were pushing them out and, and you know dr- driving them out of their homeland. Um, and I've, I had a lot of kind of um, I'd have sim- yeah sy- sympathy towards those people, um, and it just become like a, an interest as I was growing up. So when my friend told me about that, um, you know, it kind of it kind of uh, struck home a bit with my interest in the outdoors when i was growing up i uh, i was a part of the scouts as i was growing up so i was always outdoors camping and exploring going on walks and hikes um when i then heard about the trail of tears i'd done some research on it and i'd looked at the kind of places in the united states that it went through i always thought that that would be a really interesting journey to experience and at the end of it you'd have an incredible story Certainly from the introduction, people will hear some of the detail of the history and the reasons why it took place. I noticed looking at the maps now that you f- you can find when you start Googling the Trail of Tears, there's numerous different coloured routes that they took over a period of years for the different nations as they were moving them from A to B. And obviously, finally, the, the Cherokees who were f- literally forced out of their, their homeland the interesting part that I found in doing my little bit of research before doing this, uh, having this conversation, is just how established the Cherokee Nation were. They had their own alphabet, all the nation could read, they had their own constitution, they had a daily newspaper. You know, they were a well established and integrated, I guess, society with the um, surrounding uh, white people, I suppose, that were slowly invading. And so it must have been a heck of a shock for them to have literally been forced out at gunpoint straight into into camps before being shipped off. Yeah, they they were one of the five class of the five civilised tribes. So I think it's the Cherokee, the Seminole, Creek, Choctaw and... Chickasaw, yeah. So, and like you say, they had, they, they were a very, very civilized um, tribe themselves. And we actually, when when we came, when it came off the end of the expedition, was actually speaking to people that were uh, language experts, and they were trying to sort of continue and sort of perpetuate the Cherokee language with the, the, the new generations of people coming today. So it was quite an interesting. Um, Protest to go through the journey itself, and then at the end see and talk to the people that were were um, keeping the language alive. And even one chap told me that uh, they were changing keyboards, and if they hadn't, they even had an iPhone keyboard uh, that uh, that had Cherokee on it. So it was actually it was very interesting to see that. Mm. The as I say, going back to um, the good old Google, and now you can find all these different maps which have got different coloured routes. Um, now, as I understand it, some of these routes now are basically highways, main roads. So, so how did you choose which route you wanted to take? And also, tell me about the sort of permissions or permits or, or that type of thing for doing this. Are these now national trails in, in the States, or are they literally just lines on the, on the map? The, so the Trail of Tears now is, in the United States, is labelled as a national trail um, in various sections following these different routes they've got museums they've got memorials um and there's there's marked signs to highlight the whole route but as you said most of it today now is following highways because you know two, 250 odd years ago back when this happened um they were they were just on dirt tracks but over a long time those have now been paved they've been turned into these great big highways linking towns together 
So for us to be doing this as an expedition, to walk on those roads would not have been fun at all. So the whole route kind of came together by we we were we wanted to start in their homeland where they've been for thousands of years and we wanted to end where they were today uh, in Tahlequah in Oklahoma. So we looked at the routes that that they walked and we tried to find a way that we could tie as many of them together, following as close as we can, but keeping ourselves out in the wild a bit more just so we could, although we could never replicate the, you know, the environment they experienced, but just to be more in touch with the wilderness, the landscape, the wildlife and experience that side of things. So were the trails that you chose to link together, were they actually marked or did, were you, you know, forging a, a, a fresh path, as it were? Before we went out there, um, we mapped the entire thing out initially on Google Earth and we were using references from street Google Street View, paper maps we could find of these marked highways. When we were actually walking out there, you know, we, we'd rarely see these marked signposts. They, they would be every 30 or 40 miles because most of the people at that stage who were who today would be following the Trail of Tears um, out of interest, they're in a car. So naturally we were on foot. So we didn't see those signs too much. But every now and again, we'd, we'd come through a town. There'd be a small memorial about uh, a significant event that had happened in a place. Um, when we were actually on our water section, which uh, we'll go a bit more into, um, frequently in the towns that we'd stop in, they'd have like these plaques uh, overlooking the, the various rivers, the Tennessee River, the Mississippi. And these plaques would go into a lot of different information about events that had happened um, on the events of the Trail of Tears back and when they happened. And also as well, the, we'd probably say the first, or the th- I'd say three quarters of it was generally unmarked in terms of signposts because we crossed the great smoky mountains um which was the 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 sort of the ancestral homelands of the cherokee um and the the area where we started wasn't necessarily the trail the start of the trail was it it was we started in in the smoky mountains because of the sort of the link to the heritage of the cherokee and we wanted to experience that um and then once we got on the mississippi um, or the Tennessee River and then the, the Ohio and then the Mississippi River, that was unmarked. But it only got kind of street signs when we hit Memphis to then Oklahoma where we were effectively following um, the old roads and routes and tracks which had now been paved. Um, so probably h- half to three quarters was unmarked from our perspective, but it was marked in terms of the actual trail itself, the historical trail. Okay, because what I was trying to establish there was the the states, as we know, is a vast, vast landscape of land, but a lot of it's privately owned and they're very precious about their access. So Mm. were you able to undertake the route that you chose uh, freely or was it a case of you had to get some sort of permit or permissions? No, the 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 second part, um, there was as far as I'm aware, the trail itself doesn't go through private land per se um that's when we actually did all the planning we tried to uh choose a route as close as we could to the trail that gave us free access um the only permissions that i think we really needed and wanted was from the actual cherokee nation itself was the actual permission to undertake the trail 
um, which we had to under, undergo before the, even the trip started. So we, we contacted them um, and told them told them of the journey and who we were and why we wanted to undertake it. Um, our, our plan to share the story and, and perpetuate the story and, and that of the Cherokee Nation. So that that was really the only permission, I think, we, that was the most important. Just carrying on from what Ian said there, we before we undertook this, we had a lot of anticipation about how how it would be perceived to have two guys from the UK who have no um, ancestral links to the Cherokee or any of the other tribes that were involved in the events of the Trail of Tears. We didn't know how that would be perceived for us to undertake this journey and to be sharing it, you know, through through Sidetrack magazine, um, social media, writing about it on our websites, etc. So that's why we, we got in contact with them because, you know, m- many, many people, many thousands of people died during the events of what happened. And even today, there's still, there's still a lot of issues surrounding those events. How was it received then by the, by the nation? Were you received with suspicion or welcomed with open arms? What was the, what was the greeting like? Um, to be honest, it was a, it was a mix of, uh, interest. A lot of people said, why, why are you doing this? Um, but as a whole, when we got to Tahlequah, which which is sort of which is modern day uh, home of the Cherokee. Everybody was uh, a lot of people just said thank you, thank you for honouring the story, honouring the trail, thank you for walking it, thank you for sharing our story. Um, and we actually spent a week with the Cherokee Nation um, at their kind of uh, their heritage centre, where we spent um, long days with la- uh, language experts, clothing experts from the Cherokee Nation. Um, uh, and stuff like that, and we we were uh, walked around the, the 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 Cherokee Heritage Centre where they have a, a a memorial and an exhibition to the Trail of Tears, and we were told in depth about um, the story itself, and 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 we actually met people who are traditionally linked by family members to the Trail of Tears as well. So, uh, it, I, I think as a whole, it was generally very well received. But we, one of the most important things that we wanted to do was honour the story correctly. Um, we wanted to do the story justice. Um, and we wanted to to, to honour the people as well of the Cherokee Nation. Well, we'll come on to your final uh, week, as it were, uh, towards the end of the interview, if we may, because um, there's obviously a lot of ground to cover, literally a thousand miles worth of ground <laughs> to cover before we get there. And uh, that it's, it sounds fascinating. So you, so you hit the ground. Now, you, as I understand it, you were carrying everything you needed uh, for your foot passage, as it were, until you got to the Tennessee. And then you were picking up a boat, which you'd organised or sorted somehow beforehand. So I understand it. You were carrying quite a load when you uh, you left the, your, your original start point. Tell me about getting going and and how you were received by some of the other hikers and people you met en route. The first day of the trip was uh, it was very interesting because the day previous when we'd left the UK, I, I don't know about Ian, but we, we, I'd, I'd had a full day at work and then I'd gone home, got ready, and then went straight to the airport where early hours in the morning then we had a flight to the US, had an eight-hour layover in New York, and then a flight down to, to Georgia. And then from Georgia, we then had a four-hour car drive. So we finally got to the Smoky Mountains, the uh, the ancestral home of the Cherokee. And we got there about midnight. So as soon as we got there, you know, we hadn't slept in at least 24 hours. We got the tents pitched up and we bunked down for the night. So the next morning, uh, 
I think there was mixed feelings between us because we were both exhausted. We had a lot of anticipation about what was going to, uh, how everything was going to play out. And it was weird for us to actually see these places that we've been researching for nearly two years to then actually be there. And it was quite surreal. It almost didn't feel like it was actually happening. Um, we started at this, um, this campground called Elkmont and it was right in the heart of the, of the Smoky Mountains. Um, and as soon as we started off there, we, we just took uh, on up this trail that just went right up into the mountains. Um, we passed a few hikers and they were quite suspicious as to why we had canoe paddles strapped <laughs> to our rucksacks. Um, these people, they were walking the Appalachian Trail. And at this point on the Appalachian Trail, which I think starts in Georgia, and then it walks all the way up to Massachusetts, I think. Mm-hmm. Something Maine, like that. I think, Maine, yeah. yeah it's the, the Appalachian Trail is um, it's about 2,500 miles long. And the people who we were passing at this stage, they were about 200 miles into their journey. And many of them said it was definitely the, one of the most peculiar things they'd seen so far was to see two British guys walking on, on going towards them with these huge canoe paddles. We, we explained to them we were, we were crossing the Smoky Mountains and then we were going to be jumping in canoes and paddling across the country. But uh, the first few days we had fantastic weather. It was pretty cold, definitely colder than it was back in the UK. Minus six, I think, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it peaked at about minus six degrees Celsius, which I'm not too sure what that is in Fahrenheit. It, it was pretty cold mm. for us because we, we we had to pack fairly just although our bags were about 25 kilos i know mine definitely was um because i was packing camera kit a drone naturally the paddles we had kit for later on in the trip um, we didn't have winter gear for us because we wouldn't be using it for the whole trip within a few weeks it'd be getting a lot hotter so the first few nights for me were definitely quite tough because mm-hmm. I, I had a summer sleeping bag essentially and when we were still sleep deprived from the uh, the flying out there um for me the first few days were quite tough mm. especially humping all that mm. extremely heavy kit up and down those hills yeah some pretty brutal blisters <laughs> and that but we were not as bad as the latter stages when it comes to blisters but it was an epic five days because we were crossing literally the spine of the of the great smoky mountains and uh we were just following these kind of little, these small trails and then we crossed over the appalachian trail and then followed smaller trails down to the down to the Tennessee River. I should imagine it was quite a sight for some of the people that were doing the Appalachian Trail fairly lightweight with day packs and just doing day walks or whatever else to see you guys humping all that stuff. Well, I presume your rucksack, apart from full of technical gear, it must have been full of food as well. Yeah, we. Pre- I mean, we pretty much calculated exactly what we would need, like maybe like the Appalachian Trail sort of through hikers. We calculated kind of what we needed um, for that five days. And, and and we took only really what we needed, maybe a tiny bit surplus. Um, and that was just enough to get us over the mountains and down into the valley where the Tennessee River was. And then we would resupply at the river and then sort of take on take on the next stage, which was the, the canoeing. So what season was this? Um, that was March. So it would be spring, early, well, very early spring. So the, the when we finished the, 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 the crossing of the mountains and then into the canoe, uh, we were checking weather reports for the Smoky Mountains, and they had a huge dump of snow um, after the week that we were there. But prior to that, they'd had, I think, th- three weeks of solid rain. 
So we were probably caught it at the most perfect time when we were there. It was clear blue skies and, and minus six. So we, even though I'd like to have a bit of snow, just for the pictures, um, it would have, if we'd have been there two weeks before, we, it would have been a pretty emotional experience, I think. Once you got over your, your jet lag and you sort of tuned into the environment and you were, you were crossing the, the Smoky Mountains there, did you ever stop and reflect on the, the passage for these people doing their forced relocation, that what they must have gone through? Because obviously the weather at the time they did that was, was apparently a really bad winter. So, you know, you were, got, you, you were sort of prepared for it and took, had all your equipment. But as I understand it, they were just literally evicted out of their, their homes and just sent on their way. The first few five days that we spent walking in those hills, I mean, I, I have to be honest, that was definitely some of the hardest hiking I'd ever done. Um, my bag was extremely heavy, as was Ian's. Um, and the train was just up and down, up and down all day. There was a few times we definitely stopped and we thought about, hey, this is really tough. But the, the thing that kind of got us through it was thinking that when the Cherokee had done that, you know, they did not have the, the comfortable sorts of footwear we had. They didn't have the, the cushy warm jackets we had and sleeping bags. You know, they they were removed from their homes literally overnight. And then all they could do was grab the belongings they could as they were going out the door, essentially, as they were rounded up and sent to these camps so they could then be forced on to, to move towards Oklahoma. Um, they had the children with them. They had the old the elderly with them people who you know they're they weren't properly able to walk so for all of those people to have been doing that it, it would have been absolute misery so although it was tough for us we we know inside that you know we had it very easy compared to the cherokee and the other tribes as they were doing it but it's it's one of those things it's always in the back of your mind there are a lot of times when you know we're hungry and tired and cold and wet and stuff like that. You, it's always one of those things in your back of your mind that you're seeing the same landscape that they did, trying to imagine what they were going through. I don't think you could ever imagine what they were going through. But you, we were there to to tell a story. We were there to sort of immerse ourselves into the landscape and just try and, and 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 see it through the eyes of the landscape and the people. But it's one of those things you just can't really can't really do unless you speak to people and, and, and especially the Cherokee back in Oklahoma. Mm. I was up in Sky not so long back and visited one of the villages that was in fact done at the same time in the 1830s, 1840s during the Highland clearances and the village is, is still there. It wouldn't take very much to rebuild it and it's a very emotional moment when you touch a, sp- a space where people have been through such such trauma uh, I think it uh, it does make you see the landscape completely differently from being a couple of hikers that are just passing through. Mm, for sure. As you heard there, I was referring to our own shameful history known as the Highland Clearances, which took place in the early 1800s, where thousands of families were evicted, homes burned, all to put sheep on the land in Scotland. The crofters were dispersed and left to survive how they could, some succumbing to the potato blight in 1846, dying from disease and starvation, while many made a new life in Canada and, ironically, in the US. My thanks to Ian and Jamie for our fascinating conversation through history, which concludes in the next episode. I hope you found this podcast entertaining and it's earned the privilege of your time. Until next time, folks. 
Take care in this miserable wet weather. And bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk.